0: Chapter 45 of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 45 Mr. Whitelaw Makes His Will. They had carried Stephen Whitelaw to the Grange, and he lay a helpless creature beyond hope of recovery in one of the roomy, old-fashioned bedchambers. The humble Crossbar surgeon had done his best and had done it skilfully, being a man of a large experience amongst a lowly class of sufferers. And to the aid of the Crossbar surgeon had come a more prosperous practitioner from Malsham, who had driven over in his own feeton. But between them both, they could make nothing of Stephen Whitelaw. His race was run, he had been severely burnt, and if his actual injuries were not enough to kill him, there was little chance that he could survive the shock which his system had received. He might linger a little, might hold out longer than expected, but his life was a question of hours. The doomed man had seemed from the first to have a conviction of the truth and appeared in no manner surprised when in answer to his question the mulham doctor admitted that his case was fatal and suggested that if he had anything to do in the adjustment of his affairs he could scarcely do it too soon at this mr whitelaw groaned aloud if he could in any manner have adjusted his affairs so as to take his money with him the suggestion might have seemed sensible enough but that being impracticable it was the merest futility He had never made a will. It cost him too much anguish to give away his money even on paper. And now it was virtually necessary that he should do so, or else perhaps his wealth would, by some occult process, be seized upon by the crown, a power which he had been accustomed to regard in the abstract with an antagonistic feeling as being the root of the queen's taxes. To leave all to his wife, with some slight pension to Mrs. Tadman, seemed the most obvious course. He had married for love, and the wife of his choice had been very dutiful and submissive. What more could he have demanded from her? Why should he grudge her her inheritance of his wealth? Well, he would not have grudged it to her, perhaps, since someone must have it, if it had not been for that aggravating conviction that she would marry again, and that the man she preferred to him would riot in the possession of his hardly earned riches. She would marry Frank Randall and between them they would mismanage and ultimately ruin the farm. He remembered the cost of the manure he had put upon his fields that year, and regretted that useless outlay. It was a hard thing to have enriched his land, only that others might profit by the produce. And if I've laid down a yard of drain-pipe since last year, I've laid down a dozen mile. There's not a bit of swampy ground or a patch of sour-grass on the farm, he thought bitterly he lay for some hours deliberating as what he should do death was near but not so very close to him just yet he had time to think no come what might he would not leave the bulk of his property to fall into the keeping of frank randall he remembered that there were charitable institutions to which a man not wishing to enrich an ungrateful race might bequeath his money and obtain some credit for himself thereby which no man could expect from his own relations there was an infirmary at malsham rather a juvenile institution as yet in aid whereof mr whitelaw had often been plagued for subscriptions reluctantly doling out a half a guinea now and then more often refusing to contribute anything he had never thought of this place in his life before but the image of it came into his mind now as he had seen it on market days for the last four years a brand-new red-brick building in malsham high street he thought how his name would look cut in large letters on a stone tablet on the face of that edifice it would be something to get for his money a very poor and paltry something compared with the delight of possession but just a little better than nothing He lay for some time pondering upon this, with that image of the stone tablet before his eyes, setting forth that new wing of this institution had been erected at the desire of the late Stephen Whitelaw Esquire of Wincombe Farm, who had bequeathed the sum of money to the infirmary for that purpose, whereby two new wards had, in memory of that respected benefactor, been entitled to the Whitelaw wards, or something to the like effect. He composed a great many visions of the inscription as he lay there, tolerably easy to his bodily feelings, and chiefly anxious concerning the disposal of the money. But, being unaccustomed to the task of composition, he found it more difficult than he could have supported to set forth his own glory in a concise form of words. But the tablet would be there, of course, the very center of the keystone of the building, as it were indeed mr whitelaw resolved to make his bequest contingent upon the fulfilment of this desire later in the evening he told william carley that he had made up his mind about his will and would be glad to see mr pivot of Malsham, rival solicitor to mr randall of the same town as soon as that gentleman could be summoned to his bedside the bailiff seemed surprised at this request why surely steph you can't want a lawyer mixed up in this business he said those sort of chaps only live by making work for one another you know how to make your will well enough old fellow without any attorneys aforesaids and hereafters half a sheet of paper and a couple of sentences would do it i should think the fewer words the better i'd rather have pivot and do it in a regular manner mr whitelaw answered quietly i remember in a forgery case that was in the papers the other day how the judge said of the deceased testator that, being a lawyer, he was too wise to make his own will. Yes, I'd rather see Pivot. If you'll send for him, Carley, it's always best to be on the safe side. I don't want my money wasted in a chancery suit when I'm lying in my grave. William Carley tried to argue the matter with his son-in-law, but the attempt was quite useless. Mr. Whitelaw had always been the most obstinate of men and lying on his bed maimed and helpless was no more to be moved from his resolve than if he had been a roman gladiator who had just trained himself for an encounter with lions so the bailiff was compelled to obey him unwillingly enough and dispatched one of the men to malsham in quest of mr pivot the attorney the practitioner came to the grange as fast as his horse could carry him every one in malsham knew by this time that stephen whitelaw was a doomed man and mr pivot felt that this was a matter of life and death he was an eminently respectable man plump and dapper with a rosy smooth-shaven face and an air of honesty that made the law seem quite a pleasant thing he was speedily seated by mr whitelaw's bed with a pair of candles and writing materials upon a little table before him ready to obey his client's behests and with the self-possessed aspect of a man whom a last will and testament involving the disposal of a million or so would have been only an everyday piece of practice william carley had shown himself very civil and obliging in providing for the lawyer's comfort and having done so now took up his stand by the fireplace evidently intending to remain as a spectator of the business but an uneasy glance which the patient cast from time to time in the direction of his father-in-law convinced mr pivot that he wanted that gentleman to be got rid of before business began i think mr carley it would be as well for our poor friend here and i to be alone he said in his most courteous accents fiddlesticks exclaimed the bailiff contemptuously it isn't likely that stephen can have any secrets from his wife's father i'm in nobody's way i'm sure and I'm not going to put my spoke in the wheel. Let him leave his money, how he may. Very likely not, my dear sir. Indeed, I am sure you would respect our old friend's wishes, even if they were to take a form unpleasing to yourself, which is far from likely. But still, it may be as well for Mr. Whitelaw and myself to be alone. In cases of this kind, the patient is apt to be nervous, and the business is done more expediously if there is no third party present. So, my dear Mr. Carley, if you have no objection—' stiff said the bailiff abruptly do you want me out of the room say the word if you do the patient writhed hesitated and then replied with some confusion if it's all the same to you william carley i think i'd rather be alone with mr Pivot." here the polite attorney having opened the door with his own hands bowed the bailiff out and to his extreme mortification william carley found himself on the outside of his son-in-law's room before he had any time to make any farther remonstrance he went downstairs and paced the wainscoted parlour in a very savage frame of mind there's some kind of devil's work hatching up there he muttered to himself why should he want me out of the room he wouldn't if he was going to leave all his money to ellen as he ought to leave it who else is there to get it not that old mother tadman surely she's an artful old heridian and if my girl had not been a fool she'd have got rid of her out of hand when she married sure to goodness she can never stand between stephen and his wife and who else is there no one that i know of no one stephen wouldn't have kept any secret all these years from the folks he's lived amongst it isn't likely he must leave it all to his wife except a hundred or so perhaps to mother tadman and it was nothing but his natural closeness that made him want me out of the way at this stage of his reflections, Mr. Carley opened a cupboard near the fireplace and brought therefrom a case-bottle, from the contents of which he found farther solace. It was about a half an hour after this that he was summoned by a call from the lawyer, who was standing on the board-landing place at the top of the stairs with a candle in his hand, when the bailiff emerged from the parlor. "'If you'll step up here and bring one of your men with you, I shall be obliged, Mr. Carley,' the attorney said, looking over the banisters i want you to witness your son-in-law's will mr carley's spirits rose a little at this he was not much versed in the ways of lawyers and had a notion that mr pivot would read the will to him perhaps before he signed it it flashed upon him presently that a legatee could not benefit by a will from which he had witnessed it was obvious therefore that stephen did not mean him to have anything well He had scarcely expected anything, and if his daughter inherited all, it would be pretty much the same thing. She would act generously, of course. He went into the kitchen, where the headman, who had been retained on the premises to act as special messenger in this time of need, was sitting in the chimney-corner smoking a comfortable pipe after his walk to and from Malsham. "'You're wanted upstairs a minute, Joe,' he said, and the two went clumping up the wide old oaken staircase. The witnessing of the will was a very brief business. Mr. Pivot did not offer to throw any light upon its contents, nor was the bailiff, sharp-sighted as he might be, able to seize upon so much as one paragraph or line of the document during the process of attaching his signature thereto. When the ceremony was concluded, Stephen Whitelaw sank back upon his pillow with an air of satisfaction. "'I don't think I could have done any better,' he murmured it's a hard thing for a man of my age to leave everything behind him but i don't see that i could have done better you have done that my dear sir which might afford comfort to any deathbed," said the lawyer solemnly he folded the will and put it into his pocket our friend desires me to take charge of this document he said to william carley you will have no reason to complain on your daughter's account when you become familiar with its contents She has been fairly treated, I may say very fairly treated. The bailiff did not much relish the tone of this assurance. Fair treatment might mean very little. I hope she has been well treated, he answered in a surly manner. She's been a good wife to Stephen Whitelaw, and would continue so to be if he was to live twenty years longer. When a pretty young woman marries a man twice her age, she's a right to expect some handsome treatment, Mr. Pivot. It can't be too handsome for justice, in my opinion. The solicitor gave a little gentle sigh. As an interested party, Mr. Carley, he said, your opinion is not as valuable as it might be under other circumstances. However, I don't think your daughter will complain, and I'm sure the world will applaud what our poor friend has done, of his own accord-mind, Mr. Carley, wholly and solely of his own spontaneous desire. It is a thing that I should only have been too proud to suggest but the responsibility of such a suggestion is one which i could never have taken upon myself it would have been out of my province indeed you will be kind enough to remember this by-and-by my dear sir the bailiff was puzzled and showed mr pivot to the door with a moody countenance i thought there was some devil's work he muttered to himself as he watched the lawyer mount his stiff brown cob and ride away into the night but what does it all mean what has stephen whitelaw done with his money we shall know pretty soon, anyhow. He can't last long. End of Chapter Forty Five. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah. Voiceovers by Kirk. Dot Com.